Part one, chapter seven of Quo Vadis, a tale of the time of Nero. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Quo Vadis by Henrik Sinkevich, translated by Binion and Malevsky. Part one, chapter seven. Before Actia, the former favorite of Nero, even the highest officials had been wont to bow, but even then she did not care to interfere in questions of state, and if sometimes she used her influence over the young emperor, it was only to ask his mercy in someone's behalf. Modest and amiable, she won the gratitude of many, the enmity of none. Even Octavia could not hate her. To jealous rivals she seemed of little consequence. All knew that Actia still cherished a sad, painful passion for Nero, a love sustained not by hope, but by the remembrance of a time when Nero was not only younger and more devoted, but was also a better man. It was known that she dwelt only in these memories, and expected nothing of the future. And as there was no fear that Caesar would return to her, Actia was regarded as an inoffensive being. She was consequently troubled by none. Poppaea looked upon her as an obedient servant, so harmless that she did not even insist upon her leaving the palace. Out of regard for his former love, and because he had separated from Actia without a quarrel, and almost in a friendly fashion, Nero did not deny her a certain respect. When he gave her her freedom he allowed her to remain in the palace, gave her a special apartment with a separate bedroom and servants to attend her, and as in their day Pallas and Narcissus, though they were made freedmen by Claudius, were not only invited to that emperor's feasts, but, as persons of influence, occupied places of honor, so Actia was sometimes bidden to Caesar's table. Possibly this was done because of her attractive figure, which was a real ornament to the banquet. But in fact, in his choice of table companions, Nero had long since ceased to conform to the rules of decency. An impressive variety of persons of all classes and occupations assembled at his feasts, among them senators, especially those who were ready to play the fool. There were also patricians, both young and old, eager for pleasure, luxury, and debauchery. These orgies were attended also by women who, although they bore distinguished names, were not above donning discolored wigs at night and seeking adventures in the dark streets. Beside the eminent senators reclined priests, who, when the bumpers were down themselves, ridiculed their own gods. Here thronged a motley multitude of singers, actors, musicians, dancers of both sexes, verse-writers declaiming their own verses and reckoning how many sesterces will be given them for praising Caesar, underfed philosophers following with greedy eyes the dishes as they were passed around, famous charioteers, jesters, storytellers, and buffoons, every kind of knave and cheat brought into momentary notoriety by fashion or folly. Among them were many whose long hair concealed ears pierced as a sign of servitude. The most distinguished guests partook of the feast with Caesar, the remainder furnished them with amusement while they ate, eagerly waiting for the moment when the servants would allow them to fall upon the remnants of meat and drink. Such guests were supplied by Tigellinus, Vinicius, and Vitellius, who were frequently obliged to provide them with clothes befitting Caesar's palace. Feeling more at home in it, the emperor liked society of this kind. The splendor of the court covered this rabble, as if it were gilded and illuminated with its brilliance. 
the high and the low of this world the descendants of glorious families the descendants of the lowest of street paupers true artists and the miserable scrapings of talent rushed into the palace to sate their eyes blinded by almost unimaginable luxury to come near the giver of all favors mercies and riches whose whim if it could degrade could also exalt to immeasurable heights and now the day had come when lygia must take part in a feast of that sort fear uncertainty agitation quite natural after such a sudden change in her surroundings contended in her heart with a wild desire to show resistance she was afraid of the people the court and the tumult which appalled her till losing her self-control she feared the banquet of whose indecency she had heard from aulus pomponia graecina and their friends in spite of her youth lygia knew what vice was for in those days the knowledge of evil came even to children she knew that ruin threatened her in the palace pomponia had warned her of this when they parted possessed of a young and innocent heart and professing the high principles to which her foster mother had made her devoted she vowed to her mother and herself and also to the divine teacher whom she not only believed in but loved with her half-childish heart because of the blessedness of his teachings the agony of his death and the glory of his resurrection to protect herself against this ruin assured that neither aulus nor pomponia graecina would now be responsible for her actions lygia began to consider whether it would not be better to resist and not go to the feast on the one side fear and alarm had spoken loudly in her soul on the other a desire to display courage and firmness influenced her to run to martyrdom and death for the divine teacher himself commanded one to act in this kind and had set the example pomponia had also told her that the most ardent of those who believe desire with all their soul a test of this kind and pray to meet it while still in aulus's house lygia was at times seized with such a desire she used to imagine herself a martyr with wounds on her hands and snow-white feet transcendently beautiful and borne by white angels into the blue sky and such visions delighted her imagination in this there was much that was childish and also something of vanity which pomponia condemned but now when resistance to caesar's will would be followed by severe punishment and the fancied tortures might be turned into realities there was added to these imaginary tortures a curiosity mingled with fear to know exactly how they would punish and what tortures they would invent for her when lygia told actia of what was disturbing her girlish heart she stared at her as astonished as if she had heard the voice of one in delirium disobey caesar's will expose oneself at the very outset to his rage a child incapable of understanding what it is doing could alone act thus from what lygia herself had said it was clear that she was no longer a hostage but a girl forsaken by her own people no international law protected her and even if she had the protection caesar was strong enough in a fit of rage to overlook such a protection it had pleased caesar to take her he could dispose of her as he wished henceforth she was in his power a power greater than any other in the world put thy mind to rest on this point said actia persuasively to the young girl i also have read the epistles of paul of tarsus i also know that above the earth is god and a son of god who rose from the dead but on the earth caesar alone rules remember this lygia i know that thy creed does not allow of thy becoming what i was and that to you as to the stoics of whom epictetus has spoken to me one is authorized to choose only death when one must choose between death and infamy 
but how canst thou foretell that death as well as infamy threatens thee hast thou not heard of the daughter of sejanus she was a virgin but at the command of tiberius she had to pass through infamy before her death in order to keep the law against the punishment of virgins lygia lygia do not anger caesar when the deciding moment comes when thou must choose between infamy and death then act as thy true faith commands but seek not destruction of thine own will and not provoke to anger the infernal merciless god actia spoke with deep pity and even with fire by nature near-sighted she put her gentle face close to lygia's as if to verify the impression produced by her words Lygia, throwing her arms with childish confidence about Actia's neck, exclaimed, "'How good thou art, Actia!' Pleased by the girl's praise and confidence, Actia pressed her to her bosom. Then freeing herself from Lygia's embrace, she answered, "'My happiness and my joy have passed, but I have done no evil.' She began to move with rapid steps about the room, and to speak bitterly as if to herself. "'No, and he was not wicked either. He considered himself a good man and wanted to be good.' i know that better than any one all this came afterwards when he stopped loving others have made him what he is yes others and poppaea her eyelids filled with tears for some time lygia followed her with her blue eyes and then said art thou sorry for him actia i am sorry answered the greek woman in a low voice and she resumed her walk her face overshadowed by sadness wringing her hands as if in pain Lygia continued to ask her timidly, "'Dost love him yet, Actia?' "'I do.' Then she added, "'No one loves him but me.' There followed a moment of silence, in which Actia struggled to repress the emotions aroused by the memory. When finally her face resumed its usual expression of repressed grief, she said, "'Let us talk of thyself, Lygia. Drop the idea of resisting Caesar's will. It would be the act of a madman. And calm thyself. I have learned all about this house, and I think that nothing threatens thee at Caesar's hands. Had he commanded that thou shouldst be carried off for his own uses, thou wouldst not have been brought to the Palatine Palace. Poppaea is mistress here, and since she bore him a daughter, Nero is more than ever under her influence.' although it was nero who gave the order that thou shouldst attend the feast he has neither seen nor asked of thee consequently he cares nothing for thee perhaps he took thee away from aulus and pomponia merely to spite them petronius asked me to have a care for thee and as thou knowest pomponia asked the same in her letter evidently they have talked the case over together maybe he did so at her request if so if petronius at pomponia's request takes thee under his protection nothing can befall thee who knows he may have asked nero to send thee back to aulus's house i do not know how much caesar loves him but i can assure you caesar rarely disagrees with him ah actia answered lygia petronius was at our house before i was carried away and my mother is convinced that caesar did this at his suggestion if that be true one ought to be afraid said actia after a moment's thought she continued perhaps at a supper petronius unwittingly mentioned in nero's presence that there was a lygian hostage in aulus's house and nero who guards his prerogatives jealously demanded they surrender for the simple reason that hostages belong to caesar besides he does not like aulus and pomponia no i doubt whether petronius would have resorted to such a method had he wished to take thee from aulus's house i will not say that petronius is better than the others that surround caesar but he is different from them finally is there no one who would intercede for thee didst thee come acquainted at aulus's with any of those near to caesar 
i happened to see vespasian and titus caesar likes them not and seneca it is enough that seneca advises for caesar to do the opposite a blush overspread lygia's bright face and vinitius i do not know him he has just returned from armenia and is a relative of petronius's dost suppose that nero favors him vinitius is liked by every one and would he wish to intercede for thee yes actia smiled gently and said then thou shalt see him at the feast at all events thou must be there only a child like thou could think anything else besides if thou wishest to return to aulus's house then thou wilt have an opportunity to ask petronius and vinitius to intercede for thee and get thee the permission to return home if they were here they would assure thee that it would be madness and ruin to attempt to disobey caesar we may suppose might not notice thy absence but if he did notice it and thought that thou hadst dared to disobey his will nothing could save thee let us go lygia hearest thou what noise fills the palace the sun is setting and the guests will soon begin to arrive thou art right actia answered lygia i will follow thy counsel probably lygia could not herself explain how much her decision was influenced by the desire to see vinitius and petronius apart from the curiosity to be present at least once in her life at such a feast to see caesar and the court and the famous poppaea and the other beauties and all the unheard-of luxury concerning which wonders were told in rome but actia was right and the girl acknowledged it go to the feast she must lygia no longer hesitated necessity and common sense had united themselves to this hidden temptation actia took her to her private anointing room to anoint and dress her although there was no lack of slave women in caesar's house and although actia had many servants of her own she decided out of sympathy for the girl whose innocence and beauty had touched her to dress her herself in spite of her bereavement and her admiration for the epistles of paul of tarsus it was evident that this young greek woman had retained the old hellenic spirit which set physical beauty above anything else in the world as she undressed lygia she could not refrain from expressing her delight at the lines of her figure at once delicate and plump as if formed of roses and mother-of-pearl stepping back she gazed with rapture upon this incomparable spring-like beauty lygia she exclaimed thou art a hundred times more beautiful than poppaea brought up strictly in pomponia's house where a modest reserve was observed even when the women were alone the girl stood beautiful as a charmed dream harmonious as a work of praxiteles or a poem but embarrassed and blushing from mortification like a rose her knees pressed together her hands covering her breasts her eyes closed quickly raising her hands she drew out the pin that confined her hair and instantly with a gentle shake of her head her hair fell about her like a mantle approaching and touching her dark hair actia said what wonderful hair thou hast i shall not sprinkle it with gold powder where the braids overlap it gleams itself of gold only here and there will i sprinkle a little on a very little it will scarcely be noticeable will look as if a ray of light passed through it how beautiful must be thy native country where such girls are born i do not remember it answered lygia but ursus has told me there are nothing there but forests forest forests but flowers bloom in the forests said actia as she dipped her hand in a vase containing verbena with which she rubbed lygia's hair then with a gentle pressure of the palm of her hand she rubbed her body with arabian perfumed oil and when she had finished actia put upon her a soft gold-colored sleeveless tunic 
over which was to go the peplum or snow-white robe of state as however it was first necessary to arrange her hair the greek woman wrapped her in a loose white dressing-gown when she had made her sit down she gave her in charge of the women slaves and stepping aside observed the process of dressing two women put white sandals embroidered with purple on her feet lacing them with golden laces crosswise when her hair had been arranged they put upon her a state robe with beautiful soft folds then actia when she had hung pearls about her neck and touched her hair with gold powder gave orders to begin her own toilette the while not ceasing to gaze rapturously at lygia she was soon ready and by the time the first litter arrived at the main gate lygia and actia entered from the lateral portico whence might be seen the main entrance the inner galleries and court surrounded by a colonnade of numidian marble little by little the number increased of those who passed under the high arch of the gate over which the beautiful four-horse chariot of lysias seemed to be bearing apollo and diana into the air lygia was astounded by the magnificence of the scene of which the modest house of aulus could give her no conception the last rays of the setting sun illumined the yellow numidian marble which gleamed with a golden light and diffused rosy tints under the columns near the statues of the danaides of gods and heroes passed a throng of men and women themselves resembling statues draped in their togas state robes and gowns falling in picturesque folds on which glowed the light of the setting sun the gigantic hercules his head still illuminated but plunged to the chest in shadow looked down on the multitude from aloft actia pointed out to lygia the senators in broad-bordered togas and colored tunics with half-moons embroidered on their sandals the patricians and famous artists roman ladies dressed in roman or greek or fantastic oriental costumes with their hair arranged in the form of towers pyramids or after the fashion of the statues of the goddesses low on the head and ornamented with flowers many of the men and women actia called by name adding now brief and often terrible characterizations which filled lygia with fear wonder and confusion a strange world opened before her its beauty enchanted her eyes but her young mind could not grasp the contradictions it presented in the purple sunset light among these rows of motionless columns vanishing in the distance among these statue-like people there was a sense of great composure it seemed that demigods free from care undisturbed and blissful ought to live among the simple outlines of the marble but actia's low voice revealed the novel and terrible secrets of the palace there in the distance is a portico its columns and pavement still spotted with the blood which sprinkled the white marble when caligula fell under the knife of cassius charia there was his wife killed and there was his child's head dashed against a stone under that wing a dungeon is hidden in which the younger drusus gnawed his hand for hunger there was the elder drusus poisoned and there writhed in convulsions of terror gemulus and claudius there germanicus everywhere these walls have heard the cries and death-groan of the dying and these very people who are now hurrying to the feast clad in bright tunics flowers and jewels may be to-morrow condemned to death mayhap on many a face a smile hides fear anxiety and uncertainty for the following day mayhap the hearts of these seemingly crowned composed demigods are at this instant seized by flames of passion avarice and envy agitated lygia could not follow actia's words 
and although this strange world more and more delighted her eyes terror oppressed the girl's heart and her soul was suddenly seized by an inexpressible boundless longing for her beloved pomponia Grisina, for aulus's peaceful home where ruled not crime but love meanwhile the throng of invited guests continued to pour in from the apollinus quarter the uproar and the cries of those who escorted their patrons were heard from behind the gate the courtyard and the colonnades swarmed with caesar's slaves and slave women boys and praetorian soldiers who were guarding the palace here and there among the white and dusky faces were seen the black faces of the numidians with their befeathered helmets and gilt rings in their ears lutes and citheras and despite the lateness of the autumn bunches of flowers artificially grown were brought and hand lamps of gold silver and copper the ever-increasing hum of voices mingled with the splashing of the fountain whose roseate jets falling from above on the marble broke on the flagging with a sound as of sobbing Actia stopped to talk, but Lygia continued to stare about her as if expecting to see someone. All at once she flushed. Between the columns appeared Vinitius and Petronius. Beautiful, calm as gods in their white togas, they went to the spacious dining-hall. To the girl, discovering these two familiar and friendly faces, and especially that of Vinitius among these strange people, it seemed that a heavy burden suddenly fell from her heart. She felt less alone the inexpressible longing for aulus's house which a moment before had overwhelmed her became all at once less unendurable the desire to see vinitius and to talk with him allayed her fears to no purpose did she rehearse all the ominous gossip she had heard of caesar's house and actia's words and pomponia's warnings in spite of the warnings and all she had heard she now felt that she should go to the feast not only because she must but because she wished to for the simple reason that she should soon hear the dear and charming voice which spoke to her of love and happiness fit for the gods which still sounded like music in her ears and her heart fluttered with joy straightway this feeling of joy terrified her it seemed that she was a traitor to those plain simple teachings in which she had been brought up as well as to pomponia Grisina and to herself to go to the feast of necessity and to be glad that such necessity exists were two quite different things she felt guilty sinful ruined despair seized her tears came into her eyes had she been alone she would have thrown herself on her knees would have beaten her breast as she repeated guilty am i guilty am i but actia seizing her by the arm led her through the inner rooms of the dining-hall where the banquet was to take place a veil fell over her eyes there was a roaring in her ears and she could scarcely breathe her heart beat so fast she saw as in a dream the thousands of lamps gleaming on the tables and the walls as in a dream she heard the shouts which greeted caesar whom she saw as across a mist the shouting deafened her the bright light blinded her the perfumes intoxicated her and in her bewilderment she barely noticed actia as she placed her at the table and sat beside her after an interval a familiar voice called to her from her other side i greet thee fairest of earthly maidens and of the skies i greet thee divine kalina lygia recovering herself somewhat looked round vinitius was sitting beside her he did not wear his toga as both convenience and custom required that it be laid aside before the feast 
he was dressed simply in a tunic embroidered with silver palms his bare arms were adorned above the elbows in oriental style with two wide golden bracelets from the forearm the hair had been carefully removed smooth but exceedingly muscular it was the arm of a veritable warrior made for the sword and shield a crown of roses decked his head and with his eyebrows meeting across his brow and his beautiful eyes and smooth complexion he looked like the personification of youth and vigor his beauty so impressed lygia that though the confusion she had at first felt had vanished she was scarcely able to answer i greet thee marcus fortunate are my eyes that behold thee he added fortunate my ears that hear thy voice more delightful to me than the notes of flute or harp if i were ordered to choose who should sit at my side thee or venus thee would i choose my divine maiden vinitius gazed at her as if hastening to satiate his eyes with her beauty he consumed her with his gaze his glance glided from her face to her neck and her bare arms lingered lovingly on the beauty of her figure he admired her enfolded her devoured her but with his longing there was mingled a suggestion of bliss tenderness boundless admiration i knew that i should meet thee in caesar's house he continued nevertheless when i saw thee such joy filled my soul that i felt as if i had fallen upon an unexpected fortune lygia having recovered herself somewhat and feeling that he was the only one among all these many people who was near her began to talk with him and to inquire about everything that at first frightened or perplexed her how did he know that he would see her at caesar's and why was she brought here why did caesar take her away from pomponia she was terrified she wanted to go home she should die of anxiety and alarm but for the hope that he and petronius would intercede for her with caesar Vinitius said he had learned of her having been carried away from Aulus himself. He did not know why she had been brought hither. Caesar did not account for his actions or his orders to any one. But she must have no fear, for he, Vinitius, was at her side, and would remain by her. He would rather lose his sight than not see her, he would rather give up his life than to leave her. She had become his soul, therefore he would guard her as his own soul. He would build in his house an altar to her, as to a divinity, and would offer myrrh and aloes, and in the springtime apple-blossoms and early flowers. If she were afraid to stay in Caesar's house, he could assure her she would not remain there. Although he spoke vaguely, he did not say all he ought, and sometimes said what was not true, yet there was a ring of truth in his words because his feeling for her was actually sincere. He could not master his feeling of downright pity for her. Her words went to his heart when she told him how grateful she was, and assured him that Pomponia would love him for his kindness, and she herself would be grateful to him all her life vinitius was deeply touched it seemed that never again would he be able to resist her wish he shuddered her beauty intoxicated him he desired to possess her but he was conscious that she was also very dear to him and that like a goddess he might deify her besides he felt an uncontrollable desire to talk of her beauty and of his love for her the uproar of the feast increased he therefore moved nearer to her and began to whisper words of tenderness and flattery which coming from the depths of his soul had the sound of music and the intoxication of wine 
and they did intoxicate lygia surrounded by these strangers he seemed ever nearer and ever dearer to her and deserving of her complete devotion and confidence he soothed her he promised to rescue her from caesar's house he promised that he would not leave her and would do her wishes he had moreover in aulus's house spoken of love and the happiness it could bring now he confessed frankly that he loved her and that she was dearer to him than all others for the first time in her life lygia heard words like these from a man the more she listened the more she felt that a something that had been slumbering in her was waking and that her whole being was seized as by a happiness she could not explain a happiness in which boundless joy mingled with boundless apprehension her cheeks began to burn her heart to beat her lips parted with amazement she was alarmed at hearing such protestations but could not reconcile herself to losing a single word now she dropped her eyes now she turned her radiant face towards Vinicius timidly as if beseeching him to say on the noise of conversation the music the perfume of the flowers the arabian scents mounted to her head it was the habit in rome to recline at the table but at home lygia used to have her place between pomponia and little aulus now near her side was reclining vinicius young athletic loving ardent and she feeling that he was consumed with passion for her felt at once shame and pleasure a delicious weakness possessed her now she felt as if she would faint now languorous as if falling into a dream vinicius was also affected by her proximity his face grew pale his nostrils dilated like those of an arabian steed it was evident that his heart was beating with unusual force under his tunic his breath came short and heavy and his voice was broken for the first time he felt how near he was to her his thoughts became confused a fire raged in his veins which he had in vain tried to extinguish with wine it was not wine that intoxicated him but the beauty of her face her bare arms her girlish bosom moving under her gilt tunic her whole body concealed under the folds of her robe these intoxicated him more and more at length he seized her by the arm as he had already done once before at aulus's and drawing her near to him whispered with trembling lips i love thee calina my divine one marcus let me go said lygia but still gazing at her with eyes dimmed with passion he continued my goddess love me at that instant the voice of actia who was reclining at the other side of lygia was heard saying caesar is looking at you too a sudden anger at both caesar and actia seized him her words had broken the charm even a friend's voice at such a moment would have sounded disagreeable to the young warrior but actia as he thought had intentionally tried to interrupt his conversation with lygia raising his head and looking over lygia's arm at the young freedwoman he said angrily the time has passed when thou didst use to recline at the feast at caesar's side and they say that thou art growing blind how then canst thou see him with a suggestion of sadness actia answered nevertheless i can see him he too is near-sighted and is looking at you through his emerald whatever it was that caesar had done had caused alarm even among those nearest to him vinicius alarmed in turn recovered himself and fixed his gaze steadily towards caesar unable at the beginning of the feast to see caesar distinctly because of her agitation lygia ceased to look towards him carried away by vinicius's presence and words now turned towards caesar her frightened and curious eyes 
actia had told the truth nero leaning on the table with one eye closed was holding before the other a polished round emerald which he habitually used and was looking at them for an instant his glance met lygia's and the maiden's heart quaked as a child she had lived on aulus's sicilian estate and had heard from an old egyptian slave-woman of the dragons that dwelt in the caves of the mountains and now it seemed to her that the greenish eyes of one of these dragons were gazing at her like a frightened child she grasped Vinitius's arm, and in the quick-changing series of disconnected impressions which passed through her nothing definite could be distinguished. Was that he, the terrible and all-powerful Caesar? Lygia had never seen him before, but she imagined him to be quite different. She had fancied his having a dread-inspiring face and a stony expression of malice in his features. What she saw before her now was a large head, joined to a thick neck, which from a distance in spite of its dreadfulness looked like that of a child an amethyst-colored tunic cast a bluish shadow upon his broad short face his hair after the manner set by otho was arranged in four curls he wore no beard as he had shortly before sacrificed it to jupiter for which all rome thanked him although it was said in secret that he did so because his beard like that of his whole family was red there was something olympian about his forehead which projected over his brows consciousness of power was reflected in his contracted eyebrows under that forehead of a demigod was the face of a monkey a drunkard a mountebank a face vain ever reflecting his changing desires fat and swollen and in spite of his youth sickly and wrinkled the face was ominous and most repulsive soon nero laid the emerald on the table and ceased looking at her then the young girl saw his eyes clearly prominent blinking in the strong light glassy unintelligent like those of a dead man turning to petronius caesar said is that the hostage with whom vinitius is in love yes that is she answered petronius what is the name of her nation lygian does vinitius consider her a beauty dress a rotten olive root in a woman's state robe and vinitius will think her beautiful but on thy face matchless judge of beauty already have i read thy opinion of her thou needest not declare thy verdict yes thou art right she is too withered and thin a veritable poppy on a slender stalk but thou divine esthete esteemest the stalk in women and thou art three times four times right the face alone is not sufficient much have i learned in thy company but have not attained to so true a vision and i am ready to bet tullius senecio his sweetheart that although at a feast where all are in a reclining posture it is difficult to judge the entire figure nevertheless thou hast already said to thyself she is too narrow in the hips too narrow in the hips repeated nero blinking his eyes a faint smile hovered on the lips of petronius tullius senecio who up to this moment had been conversing with vestinius or rather laughing at dreams in which vestinius believed now turned to petronius and though he had no idea of what they were talking about he said you are wrong i agree with caesar very well answered petronius i have been holding that thou hast a glimmer of sense but caesar insists that thou art an unmitigated ass good said caesar laughing and turning down his thumb as was the custom in the circus to indicate that the gladiator had received a blow and was to be put to death vestinius thinking that the conversation pertained to dreams exclaimed but i believe in dreams and seneca once told me that he believed in them also 
last night i dreamed that i had become a vestal virgin said calvia crispinilla bending over the table at this announcement nero clapped his hands and all followed his example for crispinilla had been divorced several times and was infamous throughout rome for debauchery she was not confused in the least but calmly added what is there to laugh at they are all old and ugly rubria alone looks like a human being so there would be two of us though rubria gets freckled in summer-time but admit o pure calvia said petronius that thou couldst become a vestal only in dreams but if caesar commanded then i would believe that even the most improbable dreams might come true certainly they come true said vestinius i can conceive that one may not believe in the gods but how can any one disbelieve in dreams but predictions asked nero it was predicted once that rome should fall and that i should reign over the entire orient predictions and dreams are closely connected answered vestinius once a proconsul another sceptic sent a slave to the temple of mopsus with a sealed letter which he forbade any one to open he wished to see whether the god could answer the question contained in the letter the slave slept in the temple in order that a revelation might come to him in a dream when he returned he related his dream as follows i saw a youth bright as the sun and he spoke but one word black the proconsul hearing this grew pale and turning to his guests disbelievers like himself he said do you know what was written in the letter vestinius paused for a second and raised a goblet filled with wine to his lips but what was in the letter asked senecio the letter contained this question which bull shall i sacrifice a white or a black one the interest aroused by this narrative was interrupted by vitellius who had come to the feast in an intoxicated condition and who without reason suddenly burst into senseless laughter what is that keg of tallow laughing at asked nero laughter distinguishes men from animals said petronius and he can furnish no other proof that he is not a wild boar vitellius suddenly stopped his laughter smacking his lips greasy from fat dishes and sauces he looked inquiringly around among the guests as if he had never seen them before and raising his cushion-like hands he said in a hoarse voice i have lost from my finger the knightly ring which i inherited from my father who was a cobbler added nero vitellius burst out again in uncontrollable laughter and began searching for the ring in the robe of calvia crispinilla whereupon vestinius began to imitate the screams of a frightened woman and nigidia a friend of calvia a young widow with the face of a child and the eyes of a wanton said in a loud tone he is searching for what he has not lost and for what would be of no use to him even if he should find it added lucan the uproar increased crowds of slaves passed around new courses from enormous vases filled with snow and wreathed with ivy were brought out small vessels containing various kinds of wine all drank freely upon the table and on the guests roses fell at intervals from the ceiling petronius implored nero to add dignity to the feast with his song a chorus of voices supplemented this request nero at first refused it was not a mere question of courage he explained though this always failed him the gods knew what the effort cost him each time he appeared before the public but he was held up in the consciousness that something must be done for the sake of art besides as the powers had gifted him with a voice he could not allow the gifts of the gods to be wasted 
he recognized that his very duty to the state forbade them to be wasted but today he was really hoarse on the previous night he had placed leaden weights on his chest but all to no purpose he was even thinking of repairing to antium for a breath of sea air then lucan urged him to sing in the name of art and humanity it was known to all present that the divine poet and musician had composed a new hymn in honor of venus in comparison with which the hymn of lucretius was as the howl of a yearling wolf let this feast be a genuine feast so kind a ruler could not expose his subjects to such cruel tortures be not cruel o caesar be not cruel repeated all seated near nero spread out his hands as a sign that he was compelled to yield all faces immediately assumed an expression of gratitude and all eyes were turned toward caesar but first he gave a command that poppaea should be notified that he was about to sing he informed his auditors that she had not appeared at the feast because she was indisposed but as no medicine brought her such relief as did his singing he would regret to deprive her of this opportunity poppaea came immediately she ruled nero as if he were her subject nevertheless she did not dare to wound his self-love when he appeared in the character of a singer a charioteer or a poet beautiful as a goddess she entered the room dressed like caesar in a robe of amethyst color and wearing a necklace of large pearls stolen once on a time from massinissa she was golden-haired and dainty though she had been divorced from two husbands she had the face and manner of a virgin she was received with applause and shouts of divine augusta lygia had never in her life seen so wondrous a beauty she could scarce believe her eyes for she knew that poppaea sabina was one of the most corrupt women in the world she had heard from pomponia that poppaea had induced caesar to murder his mother and his wife she knew something of her terrible deeds from the gossip of the guests of aulus she had heard that poppaea's statues had been overthrown at night-time in the city she had heard of inscriptions whose authors had been condemned to severest punishment which nevertheless still appeared every morning on the walls of buildings in the city but in spite of all this the notorious poppaea who was looked upon by the christians as the embodiment of evil and crime appeared so sweet and beautiful to the maiden that she thought that so must look the angels and spirits in heaven lygia could not take her eyes from the lovely vision and an involuntary question slipped from her lips o oh, marcus can it be possible excited by wine and evidently impatient because her attention was distracted from him he answered yes she is beautiful but thou art a hundredfold more beautiful thou dost not know thyself or thou wouldst fall in love with thyself like narcissus poppaea bathes in asses milk but thou i believe venus has bathed in her own milk thou dost not appreciate thy value my sweet one look not at her turn thy eyes towards me my heart's delight touch this goblet of wine with thy lips and i will place mine on the same spot then vinitius began to push himself closer and closer to lygia but she moved nearer to actia at this moment silence was commanded because caesar had risen the singer diodorus had given him a lute of the kind called delta another musician called terpnos who was to accompany caesar came forward with an instrument called anablium nero resting the delta on the table raised his eyes a hush of silence fell on the banqueting hall broken only by the rustle of roses as they continued to fall from the ceiling caesar then began to sing or rather to declaim his hymn to venus to the accompaniment of two lutes neither his voice though somewhat worn nor his verses were bad 
lygia's conscience began to reproach her again for the hymn though in praise of the impure and pagan venus seemed beautiful to her and caesar himself with a crown of laurel on his head and his eyes raised to heaven appeared to her more majestic and far less terrible and repulsive than at the commencement of the banquet the hymn was received with thunders of applause exclamations of oh wonderful divine voice rose on all sides some of the women raised their hands and held them thus until the end of the singing as if they had been petrified with delight others wiped the tears from their eyes the entire hall buzzed like a beehive poppaea bending her golden head pressed nero's hands to her lips and held it for some time in silence Pythagoras, a young Greek of wonderful beauty, the same to whom later the semi-crazy Nero made the priests marry him, with the observance of all the rites, now knelt at his feet. Nero, however, looked attentively at Petronius, whose praises he esteemed above all. The latter said, "'As to the music, I believe that Orpheus must be at this moment as yellow from envy as Lucan, who is here present. As for the verses, I regret that they are not worse, that I might find words fitting to praise them.' Lucan did not feel offended at being charged with envy. On the contrary, he cast a grateful glance at Petronius, and feigning ill-humour began to murmur, o cursed fate that destined me to live as a contemporary of such a poet i might have a place in the memory of man and on parnassus but now i am quenched as is a night-lamp in the sun petronius who possessed a wonderful memory began to repeat portions of the hymn to cite separate verses and to analyze the finest expressions lucan as if forgetting his envy joined his ecstasy to the words of petronius nero's face reflected a high and unbounded vanity he pointed out the verses which he considered the finest at last he fell to consoling lucan telling him not to lose heart for though no one could acquire gifts which were not bestowed upon him at birth yet the worship which people gave to jove did not exclude honor for the other gods then he arose to escort poppaea who being really ill desired to withdraw caesar commanded the guests not to leave their places and promised to return in fact he returned very shortly to stupefy himself with the smoke of incense and to gaze at the further spectacles prepared for the feast by himself petronius and tigellinus the guests were constrained to listen to more verses and dialogues in which extravagance took the place of wit then paris the famous mime gave a representation of the adventures of io the daughter of imachus to the guests and especially to lygia who was unused to such spectacles it seemed that they were beholding miracles and enchantments paris by gestures of his hands and body succeeded in expressing things that seemed impossible in a dance his hands made dim the air creating a bright cloud living trembling with voluptuousness encircling the form of a maiden thrilled with a spasm of delight it was not a dance but a picture disclosing the secrets of love enchanting and shameless when at the end of the dance corybantes with a crowd of syrian dancing girls began a bacchic dance to the accompaniment of harps lutes cymbals and tambourines a dance full of unbridled license lygia began to tremble with fear it seemed to her that a living fire was burning her into ashes and that a thunderbolt ought to strike the house or that the ceiling should fall down upon the heads of the revellers but from the golden net fastened to the ceiling the roses were still falling and the now drunken vinitius said to her 
i saw thee at the fountain in the house of aulus and fell in love with thee it was at dawn and thou didst think that nobody saw thee yet i saw thee and i see thee thus yet though that robe conceals thee from my eyes cast aside thy robe as crispinilla has done behold gods and men are thirsting for love there is nothing else in the world lay thy head on my breast and close thine eyes the blood beat oppressively in lygia's hands and temples she felt as if she were crawling into a pit and as if vinitius who before had appeared so devoted and so worthy of all trust instead of saving her was drawing her down towards the abyss she felt angry with him she began to fear the feast and vinitius and herself a voice like that of pomponia rang imploringly into her ears o oh, lygia save thyself but at the same moment something told her that it was already too late, that the one whom such a flame had embraced, who had looked on at everything that had happened at this feast, whose heart had beaten as hers had while listening to the words of Vinitius, and who shivered as she did when he came near her, was lost forever. She began to grow weak. It seemed to her that she must faint, and that something terrible must follow. She knew that, under pain of Caesar's wrath, no one might rise until he rose, but even did this prohibition not exist, she now had not strength enough to withdraw. It was far yet to the end of the feast. Every now and then slaves brought on new courses, and filled the goblets unceasingly with wine. On a platform there appeared two athletes to give the guests an exhibition of wrestling the contest began the powerful bodies of the wrestlers shining with olive oil blended in one mass bones cracked in their iron arms their teeth gritted ominously between their set jaws at times the quick dull thump of their feet beat on the saffron-strewn floor again the athletes became motionless silent so that it seemed to the spectators that they saw before them a group chiseled from stone the eyes of the romans followed with delight the motions of terribly exerted backs thighs and arms but the struggle was soon ended croto the master and founder of the school of gladiators was rightly considered the strongest man in the empire his opponent began to breathe quickly then his breathing became choked his face assumed a blue tint and finally blood flowed from his mouth and he fell a burst of applause crowned the ending of the struggle croto placing his feet on his opponent's breast crossed his great arms and looked about him with the eyes of a conqueror after the athletes appeared men who mimicked beasts and their voices, conjurers and buffoons, to whom little attention was paid, for wine had dimmed the eyes of the spectators. The feast gradually became a drunken and dissolute orgy. The Syrian damsels who had participated in the Bacchic dance now mingled with the guests. The music changed to wild and disordered outbursts of harps, lutes, Armenian cymbals, Egyptian cymbals, trumpets, and horns some of the guests desiring to speak ordered the musicians to withdraw the atmosphere filled with the odor of flowers and the perfume of oils with which beautiful boys had anointed the feet of the guests permeated also with the odor of saffron and the exhalations of the guests became stifling the lamps burned with a dim flame, the wreaths drooped on the heads of the guests, their perspiring faces grew pale. Vitellius fell under the table. Nigidia, stripping herself to the waist, dropped her drunken, childlike face upon the breast of Lucan, who, also drunk, began to blow the golden powder from her hair, and followed with delighted eyes the particles as they floated upwards. Vestinius, with drunken iteration, repeated for the tenth time the answer of Mopsus to the proconsul's sealed letter. 
tullius who was mocking at the gods said in a voice broken by hiccups if the spheros of xenophanes is round then such a god might be kicked along like a barrel but domitius Afer, a hardened criminal and spy waxed wrothy at this discourse and in his wrath poured falernian wine over his tunic he had always believed in the gods people might say that rome would perish there were those that said it was perishing now and no wonder but if this should come to pass it was only because youth had lost its faith and without faith there could be no virtue the stern virtues of former days were neglected it did not seem to occur to any one that epicureans could not resist the barbarians and as for himself he grieved that he lived in such times and that he was compelled to seek forgetfulness in distractions otherwise his grief would kill him after moralizing thus he drew towards himself a syrian dancer and showered kisses upon her neck and shoulders with his toothless mouth whereupon memmius regulus laughed and raising his bald head with his wreath all awry exclaimed who says that rome is perishing nonsense i as consul know better the consuls are watchful thirty legions are guarding the peace of the roman empire placing his hands upon his temples he began to shout in a voice that filled the whole hall thirty legions thirty legions from britain to the parthian boundaries then suddenly he became absorbed in thought and touching his forehead with his fingers said mayhap there are thirty-two at last he rolled under the table and was soon engaged in heaving up flamingo tongues roast and chilled mushrooms locusts in honey fish meat and everything that he had eaten or drunk but the number of the legions who guarded the safety of rome did not pacify domitius no no he cried rome must perish for faith is lost and so are the old stern virtues rome must perish and it is a pity for its life is pleasant caesar is the greatest of caesars the wine is good oh how sad and dropping his head on a syrian girl's shoulder he burst into tears what is the future life achilles was right it is better to be a slave in this world lightened by the sun than a king in the cimmerian gloom besides it is a question still whether there be any gods though incredulity is the ruin of our youth lucan meanwhile had blown all the golden powder from the hair of nigidia who had fallen into a drunken sleep then he took garlands of ivy from a vase before him and wound them about her then he looked about him with a pleased and inquiring glance he decked himself with ivy also and repeated in a voice of deep conviction i am no man but a fawn petronius was not drunk but nero who drank moderately at first in order to spare his divine voice drank goblet after goblet towards the end and had become drunk he wished to sing more of his verses this time in greek but he had forgotten them and by mistake sang an ode to anacreon pythagoras diodorus and terpnos accompanied him but as they could not keep time they ceased nero as a critic and an aesthetic was enchanted with the beauty of pythagoras and began to kiss his hands such beautiful hands he thought i have seen but once and whose were they then his face blanched with terror they were those of his mother agrippina terrible visions possessed him forthwith they say said he that she wanders by moonlight along the sea around the bay and bowley and ever she walks 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 and appears to be seeking for something and when a boat approaches she looks at it and disappears but the fisherman on whom she has fixed that look dies forthwith not a bad theme for a poem said petronius 
Vestinius, stretching his neck like a crane, whispered mysteriously, I believe not in gods, but I do believe in spirits. Oi! Nero paid no attention to their words and continued, I celebrated the Lemuria, but I have no wish to see her. It is now five years ago. I had to condemn her, for she set an assassin to murder me, and had I not been the quicker, ye would not have heard my song to-night. We thank thee in the name of Rome and of the whole world, exclaimed Domitius Afer. Wine and let the tempens resound. The uproar was renewed. Lucan, entwined with ivy, arose and began to shout, I am not a man, I am a fawn, and I live in the woods. E ho 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 ho! Caesar was now completely intoxicated. Men and women all were drunk. Vinitius was no soberer than the other guests. Besides passionate desire, there arose in him an inclination to quarrel. This happened always when he drank too much. His dark face paled. He stuttered when he spoke, though his voice was loud and commanding. Kiss me. Today, tomorrow, tis all the same. I am tired of waiting. Caesar took thee from Aulus to give thee to me. Dost thou understand? Tomorrow at evening I will send for thee. Thou must be mine. Kiss me. I will not wait for tomorrow. Give me thy lips at once. He attempted to embrace Lygia, but Actia defended her, and she herself resisted, exerting the remnant of her strength, for she felt she was on the brink of ruin. In vain did she attempt with both hands to remove his hairless arm, in vain did she implore him in a voice trembling with grief and fear to take compassion on her. Sated with wine, his breath floated about her, and his face was pressed close to hers. This was no longer the kind Vinitius, almost dear to her heart, but a foul and drunken satyr, who filled her with abhorrent fear. She grew weaker and weaker. In vain did she writhe and turn away her face to escape his kisses. He rose and caught her in both arms, and pressing her head to his breast, he began, panting heavily, to press her white lips with his. At this moment some invincible power uncoiled his arms from her neck as easily as though they had been the arms of a child, and Vinitius himself was thrust aside as a dried branch or a faded leaf. What had happened? Vinitius rubbed his astonished eyes. Before him stood the gigantic figure of the Lygian, Ursus, whom he had met at the house of Aulus. The Lygian stood calmly, but his blue eyes gazed so strangely at Vinitius that the blood congealed in the latter's veins. Then Ursus, with a measured step, quickly conducted his queen out of the banqueting hall. Actia followed him. Vinitius sat for a moment as if petrified. Then springing towards the entrance, he shouted, Lygia! Lygia! But desire, astonishment, rage, and wine combined to cut his legs from under him. Staggering, he seized the bare arm of one of the bacchanals, and, with blinking eyes, asked her what had happened. She, with a smile in her eyes, handed him a goblet of wine and said, Drink! Vinitius drank, and fell down upon the floor. The majority of the guests were now lying under the table, snoring, in drunken slumbers, giving forth the excess of wine, and still upon the drunken consuls and senators, upon the poets and philosophers, and upon the dancing damsels and the patrician ladies, upon the members of a society still dominant, but whose soul was dead and whose end was near, roses fell continually from the golden net fastened to the ceiling. And out of doors the dawn was breaking. End of Part 1, Chapter 7